This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Bruno Amable, co-author with Stefano Palomborini of The Last Neoliberal, Macron and the Origins of France's Political Crisis, published on March the 23rd by Verso Books. It's often said that in 2016, Emmanuel Macron came from nowhere to create a political party out of nothing, and he rode an insurgent campaign to win the French presidency just a year later. In fact, as this book makes very clear, Macron and his party, La République en Marche, came from a historically rooted somewhere and something. That is, from the wing of the French centre-left that had been trying and failing for three decades to hang on to working-class voters with socialist aspirations, while at the same time appealing to professional metropolitan liberals committed to the European Union and its single market. In 2017, Macron abandoned this project and made a pure pitch for voters who wanted both intensified European integration and reforms to, lab- to, to France's labour and product markets. Thanks to Marine Le Pen, he won, but as Professors Amable and Palomborini point out, this liberal, pro-EU, pro-reform vote is too small to provide a sustainable winning coalition. If neoliberalism is to endure, they say, it must create its own social base. Bruno Amable is Professor of Economics at the University of Geneva. His research focuses on varieties of capitalism, their distinct institutions, and how these influence innovation, industrial organization, and productivity. Bruno, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, you, you published The Illusion of the Bourgeois Bloc in French in 2017. Is this um, essentially an English translation, and what was the process that led to this English version uh, in 2021? Um, actually, there are two versions of the French book. Uh, we published a first version uh, in 2017, uh, before the uh, election of Macron, and then we wrote an, um, uh, uh, an extra chapter after uh, Macron was elected, and that was um, the second uh, French edition. Um, and uh, we... Uh, um, there was a German edition that was based on this uh, fifth, uh, on this uh, second edition, and um, the uh, English version is basically um, the second edition of the um, of the French uh, version, plus an afterword uh, specific to the uh, English edition. So I mean, it looks as if uh, with that intent, we've used the strategies of the music business, like, you know, adding uh, an extra track to the LP. 
And, and did an English publisher come to you, or did did you push the book to try and get it into English? What was what was the process? No, it's actually um, a verse. I actually was uh, uh, contacted us in order to publish the book. I think it was recommended. Some some people had read the. Um, uh, the French version, and I think uh, recommended the book to us, which is why they came back to us. Yeah, um, it's and it's 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 very interesting because um, I mean, from memory, uh, Verso is is a left wing publisher, and you you may your your at the very end of the book, uh, you make your your sympathies towards President Macron clear. You say, "quote We need to equip ourselves." Uh, with the means to fight Macron as what he is, not the defender of an open society opposed to cultural conservatism or as a convinced Europeanist who fights nationalism in all its forms, but quite simply as a right-wing neoliberal president. But having said that, at the core of the book is your identification of a viable social base for a neoliberal project. Uh, and this is this idea of the bourgeois bloc. C- could you could you talk us through the, the broad thesis of the book and then we'll get down to some of the some of the detail the broad thesis of the book is that uh, macron is um, the end of an attempt at building a totally new strategy political strategy in order to implement a neoliberal transformation of the french socio-economic model and this is a very uh, old project as uh, the book documents it um, so the traditional political actors like the uh, Parti Socialiste and uh, the cons- different conservative coalitions had more or less half-heartedly tried to implement this strategy, but it didn't work until uh, Macron was there. And um, the political strategy is, is based on a specific social base, which takes the more affluent part of two different social alliances that were opposed uh, in, in a way still are before Macron, but they don't exist as such any longer. Uh, what, what we call the right bloc, the social base of the conservative coalition, uh, and the left bloc, that is the social base of the, le- of the um, uh, uh, left parties. And uh, if you take the more uh, the better off parts of uh, these uh, two coalitions, there is a possibility to have a social base that would be in favour of uh, implementing this neoliberal transformation of the socio-economic model. Yes, uh, but I, I, th- I think you also imply it in the book, uh, you may even say it, but th- there, I guess there are two possibilities to sustain a bourgeois bloc. One would be, and you do say this very clearly, you say one is, is, is sort of to encourage abstention among working class voters. Um, but but the other one is uh, for the neoliberal reforms to have been seen to have worked in terms of generating economic growth and jobs, if not job security. Do, do you think this is a there is any possibility for this uh, for this social base to be sustained if if the neoliberal project is proved to be successful just in terms of generating um, aggregate growth? I think that um, it is not possible to sustain this uh, neoliberal strategy based on such a narrow social base that would be the bourgeois bloc alone. So there is a need for extension of the social base in in one or several directions. But the most 
um, likely direction that is going to be taken is to sort is to rebuild some sort of a new right block, mm. but without the most popular part of this block that would be pushed outside of the block or uh, pushed in the fringes of, of of the right block. So it would be like uh, a revamped. Uh, right block, the transformation of the bourgeois block into a revamped right block by extending uh, the the social base in the direction of the uh, uh, social groups that used to be supportive of the conservative uh, uh, political strategies. Yeah, and you you make this point um, very clearly that the uh, again, a quote here, you, get, you say the right has had no real strategy for mediating between the heterogeneous expectations present within the social alliance it represents. And you say that the main neoliberal reforms in France have been carried out by governments of the left. Do you think that um, if if somebody is to make this kind of strategy work, they essentially have to come from a come from a centre-left tradition, which which Macron and mo- many of the people around him do? Um, yeah, it is because um, I would say that, um, I mean, some politicians tried uh, to implement the bourgeois bloc strategy, but they, they failed because they were identified uh, either with, with the right uh, parties or, or the left parties. So Macron succeeded uh, it's not simply because he came from the left, but because he had no visible political tag attached to him. Um, the, the specificity of the left is that, um, as, you, as you recalled, the, um, some, at least some of the most uh, important uh, neoliberal reforms were implemented by left governments, and um, it has had an effect on the social base of the left. So the, the most... Um, uh, the mostly affected social base is the left bloc, which as such probably doesn't exist any longer, whereas the right bloc is, uh, is of course, fractured. But um, as I've said, there is a possibility to actually uh, renew it uh, with the help of the um, um, of Macron's uh, uh, political strategies. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the fact that the, the left positions have... Um, Almost deliberately, and for some of them deliberately, um, uh, abandoned their traditional social base in search for a new for, for, for a new social base, um, and that explains why um, Macron uh, was able to capitalize on two things: being associated with this reform movement because he was part of the uh, uh, Holland uh, uh, team, and uh, the fact that he was not so much. Uh, um, attached to a particular political party. Hmm. Well, a, r- a really interesting part of the book uh, is the is the history of of the of the Parti Socialiste and particularly the Second Left, which you identify, you know, going back a long way as really, I suppose, the tradition from which uh, from which Macron uh, came. Um, can you talk us through that history and the, the tensions that it that it caused inside the centre left, essentially over over three decades? Um, I, th- I think, in order to properly understand it, <clears throat> you probably would have to find the roots uh, in the interwar period. But mm-hmm. going to the post-war period, um, the political institutions of France 
made it possible for a non-communist left, as uh, was the traditional uh, denomination of the time, for a non-communist left to um, not accept the political alliance with the Communist Party, which at the time was uh, a very significant and a very important party in terms of um, uh, um, the number of voters. So um, you've got this tradition within the left of trying to reject an alliance with uh, a party or a set of parties which are uh, more to the left than the uh, what used to be the Socialist Party under different denominations. And so you've got different... Um, uh, different representations of this uh, uh, second left, as as it said, um, um, trying to uh, be less uh, interventionist in terms of uh, uh, state intervention in the economy, uh, being more open to decentralisation and so on and so forth. Uh, what changed is that the uh, institutions of the Fifth Republic uh, after 1958 made it almost um, mandatory for a left party to find an alliance with the Communist Party. Mm. So the second left was uh, um, uh, more or less compelled to accept this alliance with the Communist Party, but a sizable part of the Socialist Party was still thinking that one day or another it would be possible to actually get rid of the Communist Party and uh, have an alliance and an alliance would be found in the centre and probably in the centre-right. So you've got people like uh, Rocard, like Delors, uh, who would be more or less openly uh, working for the dissolution of the traditional left alliance, and when I say traditional, I mean with the uh, Communist Party, and uh, work in the direction of an alliance that would Im Im uh, break up the Conservative coalition. And yet, even that left, um, I guess it's the same in every country, but even that left, which you would now consider to be very moderate, was, was way to the left of where we can where we, we now consider moderate centre-left opinion to be. Um, what was it that, met, that, had, that had this very strong commitment to European integration running through it, particularly with people like, uh, say, say Rocard and uh, Delors? It's a bit of a degeneracy, really, because if you find um, the this uh, second left, even before the term was coined, um, if you trace a line going from Mendes France to Macron through Rocard, Delors, and a few others, you find that, indeed, I mean, the, the left um, uh, character of their politics is is going uh, uh, is is fading away as as you move from Mendes to Delors and from Delors to to Macron, and it is um, the fact that uh, the European integration project itself uh, has become more and more increasingly uh, neoliberal, uh, and this is in part due to the action of uh, someone who, who is representative of the second left, uh, who is the law. Mm. Um, and the fact that uh, as as far as in, uh, as European integration uh, progresses, uh, the neoliberal character of this integration is becoming more, uh, more pronounced, making it uh, less and less possible to actually implement a moderate social democratic uh, uh, um, uh, uh, European integration. 
So that explains that when Macron uh, promotes uh, the pursuit and furthering of European integration in the 2010s, it is very different to the sort of European integration that someone from Mendes France was uh, uh, envisaging in the 1950s. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And when the left came to power in, in 81, I mean, it's, it's, it's core economic policies, so core economic policies were highly confrontational with the with the European economic community as it then stood, and in particularly with, with the German government. Do you think um, that people like uh, people like Mitterrand, uh, Atelier, uh, Delors, even that they thought they could bend Germany to a a sort of French left vision in the same way that Syriza thought that it could bend Europe in in twenty fifteen were they? Do you, do you think that was the motivation at the time? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it was pretty clear from the uh, from the beginning that uh, there would be no possibility to actually alter the course of European integration. And at the time, in the nineteen eighties, the, the 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 question was also to uh, to further European integration, and that is what Delors achieved when he was. Um, uh, president of the European Commission. I mean, uh, a large part of the European integration process that we have start in the 1980s with uh, with the actions of uh, Delors, European monetary integration, uh, the single market, and so on and so forth. I mean, all, all this, uh, uh, including uh, freedom of capital movement, all this was uh, decided in the 1980s, implemented in the 1980s, and it was due to the action of Delors when he was uh, at the head of the commission. So mm. going back to uh, the period just before that, I think that um, pretty soon uh, it became clear to people like Mitterrand and, and people around him that uh, there was a possibility to uh, um, further European integration, to present it as a key political project uh, but this would imply to relinquish the most uh, left part of uh, of, uh, uh, um, of the Socialist Party's program. Hmm. Actually, what, uh, going back to the history again, one thing I didn't know that uh, was very interesting in the book was how uh, Jean Jean Marie Le Pen was so committed to the European project back in you know back in the seventies and, and and early eighties. Uh, essentially, as you say as leverage to try and get the kind of reforms he said he wanted at the time. I mean, could you talk us through that? Because it's a very interesting trajectory between him and and the policies of his daughter. Um, yeah, I mean, at the time, in the early 1980s, uh, the Soviet Union was still existing. So uh, Le Pen saw some uh, European Union as a way to counteract the, uh, uh, the Eastern Bloc, so to speak. So he was pretty much a traditional uh, far-right, un, un, um, united Europe against Bolshevism in a way. Um, 
and he was more pro-European than uh, uh, than probably the traditional conservative parties at the time. Uh, he became anti-European for a while when uh, it's, it, he associated or his party associated the European integration process to some sort of social democratic uh, uh, integration, which it was not, but it was still too social democratic for him. Um, and then the, the National Front switched to opportunistically, really, uh, to an anti-European integration stance, um, uh, which the uh, the party renamed uh, Rassemblement National uh, uh, recently uh, again uh, 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 abandoned uh, because the party now is is uh, uh, is in favour of uh, keeping France in the European Union and keeping uh, uh, the euro as as a currency etc. So I mean there is no no um, set um, uh, position being for or against the European Union, if you look at, uh, at the National Front, they're going to be very opportunistic in, uh, in, uh, in trying to, um, to, to present themselves as pro or anti-European Union. And it has to do also with the type of social basis that they're looking for. Uh, when they were uh, trying to expand their social base in the direction of more popular classes, uh, who are not particularly fond of European integration, then it was instrumental for them to adopt an anti-European integration uh, position. Nowadays, what they're trying to do is uh, probably to envisage some sort of an, an, an alliance of the right, uh, an alliance with the traditional conservative parties, and they are <clears throat> more actively looking for um, uh, a social base going in the direction of uh, small entrepreneurs, um, uh, even um, moderately well-off uh, people. I mean, not specifically the the popular classes, which they think uh, are no longer an area where they they are going to expand their uh, constituency. So I mean, uh, they they switched back to a more traditional um, neoliberal position, and they're trying to appeal to to um, a constituency which is uh, more in favour of business. And business within uh, uh, Europe. Yeah, that 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 is an interesting uh, um, development, isn't it? I mean, what will happen to that working class vote that they've been relying on for the last uh, twenty years in, in in that environment? Well, it's funny because uh, it, it seems as if um, they take this electorate for granted. Mm. Uh, the next election is going to tell us whether they're right or not. But they seem to make uh, an, um, the following simple calculations, which is to say, we're going to appeal to this aging, uh, traditional working class um, on on account of our position with respect to immigration, and we are going to appeal to the more middle class business type of constituency uh, with our opening towards business and towards European integration. So they're try, probably trying to to think that uh, it doesn't matter what they present uh, as uh, uh, as a position uh, regarding Europe, uh, the traditional working class that votes for them, uh, uh, they are still going to vote for them because uh, their their um, image as an anti-immigration party is is so strong. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think this opens a uh... 
uh, an opportunity for a more traditional left party to try and dig into that uh, to that disillusioned uh, Rassemblement National vote? It would, if uh, it's a question of priorities, really, with the electorate. Is this electorate more concerned about uh, anti-immigration statements or is it more concerned about the preservation of the social model? Mm. And um, it's it's both a tactical and a strategic question. And it is a tactical question with respect to the type of uh, themes that are put forward in, in a campaign by, uh, by a left party. Um, if they insist on things like uh, the defence of the social model, um, public investments, public infrastructures, and so on and so forth, uh, there might be a possibility to, uh, to, to gain, or at least to separate part of this popular electorate from the, uh, the Rassemblement National vote. But if the campaign is oriented towards things which are um, not specifically focused on these uh, social welfare, social investments and so on, um, then it will be extremely difficult for a left party to actually gain an electorate uh, uh, with, with this part of the Rassemblement National uh, uh, social mm. base. Yeah, are you getting there? I mean, you early on in the book, you have this very strong criticism of um, a piece written by the Terra Nova think tank, which sort of gives up on the traditional working class vote and says that the left should be more oriented towards questions of culture and identity. Is that what you're getting at there, that that would be a, a mistaken strategy for a party of the left? Yeah, I think that is the strategy of the Socialist Party, and look at where they are now. I mean, they're just, uh, you know, very uh, unimportant, um, not even the lies of Macron. So, I mean, they, they've all, almost vanished. Um, so the when the left parties um, do not support the expectations of their traditional uh, social base i mean there is it's no wonder that, that they actually lose the support of this social base yeah yeah it's, I, i'm sorry i've taken you away a bit from the book here which is <laughs> uh, because because it was so interesting but I, I'll, I'll come back to 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 probably the key theme which is this and i i'll i'll quote you again here um Macron's project can be summarised as using the support of a social base united around continued European integration in order to drive neoliberal reforms that are far from unanimously supported even within this same social base. And we've touched on it a few times here, but this idea um, of Europe as an issue being weaponised by various sides, including the uh, FNRN, including uh the the right of of the ps and you identify these three critical dates in how in, in how this became the defining issue in france first of all the the maastricht referendum in 92 then the constitutional treaty referendum in 2005 and then the vote for francois bayrou in 2007 which showed showed people that there was potentially this this core vote of 18 to 24 percent um up for grabs so could you could you talk us through that uh, uh that narrative the fact is that so the 92 maastricht referendum was important in splitting the uh the left block 
Uh, it was, um, as you know, the result uh, uh, was very uh, um, undecided until the end. I mean, it could have been, uh, uh, it, it only won by a narrow majority. Mm. Um, but what it did, what the Maastricht referendum did, was to split both blocks, actually, but certainly the left block more seriously than the right block. Uh, and it became more apparent uh, when when the, um, the constitutional treaty referendum in two thousand and five uh, was uh, was proposed, was where I think the, um, uh, the 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 rupture, not only of the social base, the left bloc itself, but the rupture within the, uh, the socialist party was uh, was uh, uh, more 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 serious. Um, mm. So it's it's uh, those moments were key in breaking up the traditional social alliances and making it possible for an, a political entrepreneur, such as Macron, to propose a solution to unite the part of the former left and right blocs um, to form, uh, to, well, at least to, to support a political strategies that would be dedicated to furthering European integration. Um, and the issue of European integration was so important in 2017, precisely because it was a way to consecrate, in a way, the uh, uh, the alliance of the social groups that used to be uh, part of different social alliances until then. And my prediction would be that for the next election in uh, uh, 2022, probably the uh, European integration uh, issue is not going to be as important as it was uh, in 2017 because of the break-up of the traditional alliances have been uh, achieved. And probably the main issue for Macron in 2022 will be to consolidate the extension of his social base towards uh, groups more uh, traditionally attached to the left, uh, uh, to the right constituency. Which is why I would expect themes more uh, uh, traditionally uh, linked to uh, conservative economic policies, such as uh, taxes and so on and so forth, to be more prominent uh, than they were in uh, in twenty seventeen. Do you think there's no opportunities on the uh, among the left vote? I mean, for example, you, you point out in the book that polling was done of um, the supporters of um, uh, La France Insoumise, and it found that uh, anti-European sentiment and pro-European sentiment was essentially 50-50. So, yes, there, there clearly is this link between people who are pro-reform and people who are pro-EU, but there seems to be this other sort of broadly pro-European sentiment on the left too that perhaps he could tap into. It is it's because um, the the left is traditionally attached to a rejection of nationalism. So, yeah. um, for good uh, or for worse, uh, European integration is attached to a rejection of nationalism. So, which is why uh, a significant part of the left social base is really reluctant to reject European integration. Mm. Although they would uh, readily reject the neoliberal transformation, which is uh, uh, related to it. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, in a way, maybe it's an opportunity for a left party, such as France Insoumise, that uh, Macron is going to be less reliant on uh, on uh, European integration uh, for for at least it's what I, I expect for the twenty twenty two campaign. That would be a possibility to um, uh, put this dividing line of the left uh, constituency uh, more in the background and maybe concentrate on the more right-wing uh, aspects of uh, Macron's policy, not only uh, in, as, as, uh, uh, as far as economic policy is concerned, but also the more repressive aspects of uh, Macron's uh, uh, presidency in terms of civil liberties uh, and uh, um, civil rights, really. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he does appear to be trying to tap more into into that so traditional, you know, the kind of people who voted Fillon in 2017. Is it is it looking like a successful strategy at the moment? Uh, at the moment, yeah, it is. <clears throat> the um, the the uh, Conservative Party uh, called Les Républicains are pretty much divided, and and the fact that they can't find um, a candidate, they haven't found one so far. Uh, a credible candidate is a reflection of uh, the fact that uh, they're they're uh, they're really divided uh, with respect to what type of uh, tactic that they uh, want to implement uh, uh, towards uh, Macron, either support him more or less directly or more or less openly, or trying to compete with him and propose a candidate, uh, maybe with. Uh, uh, with the idea that they could have some sort of an alliance uh, uh, once one of them is, is elected, either Macron or the right-wing uh, candidate. And on the left side, I mean, it, it, it looks like we're starting to see the emergence of uh, Christian Taubira, perhaps as the as the candidate of the, uh, the centre-left. Do you think she is the kind of candidate who might be able to reunite the... The, the centre-left and the far-left in a way that we haven't seen since, uh, well, for, for a long time, as a, credible, as a credible candidate for 22? No, I don't think so, really. I, I, I don't think that anybody, like, uh, you, you've got other names, other people. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't even think uh, Tobira is going to run. Uh, right. I think that uh, the person at the moment who seems to be more willing to go is uh, the, the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo. Oh, yeah. uh, but I don't think um, these people are too much, uh, are not credible enough for a, a more radical left. I mean, they're, they're, what they propose is uh, is probably not different from what Benoit Armand proposed in, uh, in 2017. So, I mean, it would be extremely difficult. They would appear, and I think they are in, in reality, they would appear as uh, some sort of, um, um, you know, second... Uh, class uh, allies of Macron uh, eventually. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the uh, Macron reform agenda has been put on ice because of the pandemic. Um, what would your expectations be for what a second term would be like once we're on the other side of the pandemic? Um, I think the... F- the, the big part of their neoliberal programme would be to dismantle the social model, the welfare 
uh, institutions. And uh, in fact, um, you've got hints that they are going to do that because uh, they want to push uh, already now. They want to push the um, push forward the um, the reform of uh, uh, unemployment benefits, uh, and they want to pursue the uh, uh, reform of uh, the pension reform, which has, mm. as you say, has, uh, has been put on ice because of. Uh, well, because of the position, really, not simply because of the pandemic. Um, so I would say that um, the next big uh, part of the, the, the second term of Macron would be to further and probably finish the uh, radical transformation of the welfare state in France. Yeah. Well, and that brings me to my last question on the book, which is, uh, I don't really understand the title in English because you've just described something that suggests a continued neoliberalism, and yet he's called the last neoliberal. <laughs> <laughs> That's because um, if you go back to um, the uh, the introduction, uh, mm. we proposed um, three uh, archetypical model of uh, socio-economic model, mm. and the neoliberal model would be uh, the one that would be based on this sort of narrow social base. In a way, is is the last neoliberal because uh, we think that the furthering of the neoliberal transformation of the socioeconomic model in France, but probably in other countries as well, is going to be based on a broader uh, social base than strictly the uh, neoliberal uh, uh, support groups. Um, so he, he might be the last neoliberal in a way that uh, he was elected in 2017 as having a project that would be strictly reliant on this rather narrow social base. But uh, furthering the neoliberal project would probably imply a crossover to what we called uh, the illiberal, uh, uh, it's not terribly terrific name, but the illiberal uh, um, uh, uh, project. So, um, you know, in a way, I mean, there is a, a, a political necessity for politicians who want to implement a neoliberal project to actually cross over to these uh, authoritarian, uh, illiberal types of uh, political strategies. Right. Okay. Well, um, to close, uh, I ask all my guests to choose a book to recommend to listeners. What, what have you chosen and why? So I've chosen a, a book which so far hasn't been translated into English as far as I know, but which might be, hopefully in the future, <laughs> by my uh, colleague at the University of uh, Geneva, Cédric Durand. So he published a book called in French, uh, Techno-Feudalism, which I think can be <laughs> easily translated into techno-feudalism. Um, and it's an interesting uh, analysis of uh, uh, the digital economy. Uh, uh, what it does, the type of ideology that it is based on, and the fact that it won't fulfil the promises of liberation that some of uh, its um, some of the propaganda around it is uh, um, is uh, is, is uh, advertising. Okay, well, uh, thanks for that. And today I've been talking to Bruno Amable about the last neoliberal Macron and the origins of France's political crisis published on March the 23rd by Verso. Bruno, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much.